Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Few people today, except perhaps those of you listening to this show, are aware that every state of the Confederacy also produced regiments of volunteers who remained loyal to the United States. One of these units was the 1st Alabama Cavalry, who rode with Sherman's headquarters during the March to the Sea. Journalist Howell Raines, who was a descendant of Alabama Unionists, has employed his professional skills to uncover the remarkable story of this regiment and the equally remarkable story of how their service was almost completely omitted from the historical record after the war. Now, he's brought that story back to light in the new book, Silent Cavalry, how Union soldiers from Alabama helped Sherman burn Atlanta and then got written out of history. We'll talk with Howell Raines tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, overlooking the courtyard of the Brewster Building. That is still not complete. Contrary to what I said a month ago, the project supposed to be done in August is still not yet open uh, for people to walk across, uh, maybe next year. Uh, And we are indeed at the last show of uh, of the year, of the academic fall season, December 2023. But even though I'm complaining about ECU, I'm not speaking for ECU, nor will my guest speak for any organization other than himself, as we always do. Um, Well, it is the end of the semester. Uh, Final exams have been given. The blue books are in a stack on my desk. And it occurs to me they are have become in the last year sort of the last line of defense against the onslaught of artificial intelligence and chat GPT uh, if used for academic integrity violations because the students know, and I I make sure I remind them, that I have their 
their blue books from their midterms and their finals. These are written in class uh, in a grueling hour or two-hour session. And that means I have writing that I know is theirs. I watch them do it. And if they can barely string an English sentence together in a blue book, and then they turn in a paper they wrote at home that flows with words of which they are unlikely to know the meaning, uh, then I have a pretty good suspicion they're, they're not the authors of that home paper. And that, that gives me a weapon to try to keep them on the straight and narrow. But in any case, I'm glad to be talking with you tonight and not uh, taking, taking a nice break from grading. Uh, it's... I was talking with my wife who, who teaches uh, secondary school, and we were agreeing as, as one gets older, it's uh, harder to muster the energy sometimes to, to give bad grades that then require you to explain why and work with the student, try to get them to pull things up. It, it's tempting to just say, here, yeah, you tried hard, here's a decent grade. But we have neither of us fallen to the, the level of Yale University, which we I saw an article about recently said they have something like 80% A's there. Grade inflation has run amok. Um, as Thurston Howell once said, uh, graduate of, of my uh, of, of Harvard, which I try to remind people every week, I have a Harvard degree, so here's my chance. Um, in Thurston Howell's words, Lovey, I had the worst nightmare last night. I dreamed I was a Yale man. Uh, <laughs> So don't have to worry about that. In less typical campus news, um, uh, I'm sure many of you saw uh, earlier here in December 2023, there was another mass shooting, uh, which is hardly newsworthy. Uh, there's so many of them. But in this case, the, uh, the person committing the act was a former East Carolina University professor in the business school, uh, committed the crime in Las Vegas. Not someone I, I knew. I, I looked uh, looked him up. I had never met him. Uh, but uh, among the other stories that have come out is that the, the killer had a list of targets of people he wanted to, uh, to shoot, uh, which included some people at here at ECU. Apparently, I'm not among them. Uh, no reason I would be, I guess, unless he like, didn't like the show or something. But... Uh, uh, it's it's that's just a little too close to home, I have to say, a little bit disconcerting. On more cheerful topics, uh, it's the holiday season. Uh, you can keep in mind uh, Civil War talk radio as you purchase your holiday gifts. T-shirts always uh, in good taste uh, are available at the website www.impedimentsofwar.org. But you can also uh, send civil war buff in your life or yourself to the civil war institute at gettysburg college uh, next june uh, if you have never been to civil war institute it's it's worth it and they're offering a discount uh, in december uh, for holiday purchasing so uh, go to the gettysburg.edu website gettysburg college look up cwi and uh, and sign up i'll be there and look forward to seeing you there while you're at the website, impedimentsofwar.org, you can find out uh, who's going to be on the show next. Well, actually, you will after I send to Mark Gaffney, the webmaster, 
a list of who's going to be on the show next. Uh, well, this is our last show of the the fall season. We'll be back in January. Elizabeth Varon, uh, biographer of James Longstreet, will be with us. Uh, her book's getting a lot of favorable buzz. I'm looking forward to talking with her again. And uh, after that, lots of other interesting guests in January. Tonight, I'm honored to have as guest on the show Howell Raines, who is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. He's the former executive editor of the New York Times, and he is now the author of Silent Cavalry, How Union Soldiers from Alabama Helped Sherman Burn Atlanta and Then Got Written Out of History. Uh, Howell, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jerry. I appreciate you giving me this chance to talk about my book. Well, it, it's a very interesting book. Your publicist was on the ball making me aware of it, and I normally don't do a show during finals week here, but when this book came across the desk, or the advanced copy that I'm holding here came across the desk, um, I, I decided to add an extra episode to the fall season because I really wanted to, to share this book with the audience and talk with you about it. Uh, it's a very personal book. Uh, it, it's the first Alabama is certainly the the subject of the book, but it's not written from a detached historical perspective. This is uh, well. Well, let, maybe let's start with you. Your your roots are in in northern Alabama, same as the regiment. Is that right? That's right. My mother is from Winston County, uh, the free state of Winston which sent almost 300 of its citizens into the Union Army. And my father's from Walker County, Alabama, the next county toward Birmingham, which sent about 175. So this was the, this is what I called the Unionist pod of Alabama. Very few people know that 3,000 Alabamians uh, enlisted in the Union Army. Uh, that's 3,000 white Alabamians. There were another 10,000 freed slaves from Alabama who were also uh, served in the war. Um, so this was, the Alabamaness of this, I guess, is pretty deeply rooted in me because around 1948 or 49, when I was five or six years old, my grandmother, who was born only six years after the war ended, told me, uh, gave me my first hint that we were not typical supporters of the Confederacy. She said one day in near her farm in Walker County, she and her late husband, from whom I was named, were walking down the road, and he said, oh, no, here comes one of those damn Democrats. Well, of course, Alabama was a yellow dog Democrat state in those days, so that was my first hint that we were of a different political persuasion. Then when I was 18 years old, a freshman at Birmingham Southern College, I ran across a reference in the 1934 bestseller, Stars Fell in Alabama, to the free state of Winston, and to a, a, it referred to a man named Sheets uh, as a, a prominent unionist from that era. So those two incidents uh, set me on what turned out to be a five or six decade quest to find the full story of the first Alabama when I was able, through diligent digging through scattered footnotes across a wide range of books, to put together uh, both the service record of the first Alabama USA and Chris Sheets' biography, I then began to wrestle with another question. 
that was why no one knew about them. Well, let, let me uh, step back because I absolutely want to ask in detail about that. But if, if you're being raised in Birmingham, Alabama in the 1950s, even if you have the sense maybe your your people are uh, you know have a different political view, Birmingham is the most segregated city in the country, uh, and and racism is is a learned uh, affectation. How how what do you think inoculated you from that? Well, that's a. a, a Interesting question and an apt one. Um, let's start with the Civil War. Mm -hmm. Confederate loyalty and nostalgia was, was not a civic neurosis in Birmingham the way it is in New Orleans or Atlanta. Uh, and and Mobile, I should add, which is a mm -hmm. still deep-dyed Confederate uh, city. Birmingham was not founded until, until 1872, and it was part of the New, New South Industrial Movement. So Birmingham, unlike most Southern cities, uh, did not was not peppered with uh, with Confederate memorials, and there was only one antebellum home within the city limits of Alabama of Birmingham. <laughs> so it didn't have that plantation aura about it. And another thing that uh, that was shaping uh, in my life was that my parents were the members of a church called the Church of God of Anderson, Indiana. <laughs> I was embarrassed to have to write Church of God on my school enrollment card <laughs> because most of my friends were Methodist and Baptist and mm -hmm. uh, Presbyterians or Episcopalians. Well, as it turned out in the 1950s in the most segregated city of the South, they were hearing sermons from the pulpits in their churches that God uh, endorsed slavery and that God was a segregationist. In the Church of God of Anderson, Indiana, which today has only a million members, there was an entirely different uh, tradition. They came out of the Methodist Pious movement, pietist movement of the Midwest. They held the first integrated services, church services in Mississippi and Alabama during Reconstruction. And so, I never heard a racist sermon in that church. And in addition, one of my uh, great uncles was a member, mem minister in that church. Helped found a campground in Birmingham, where even during the Bull Connor era, there were integrated revival meetings. So that those forces that operate in the childhood are very forceful. But mm -hmm. and it, as I say in my book, and as you rightly said a moment ago, Jerry, racism is learned in the bosom of the family. So I was spared mm -hmm. that in my church, and I was spared that in my home because my parents forbade the use of racist language in our home. So you had this, you know, fortunate, remarkably, you know, fortunate uh, religious and familial upbringing. Um, educationally, on the other hand, I'm guessing you didn't learn about the 
the Free State of Winston, of Winston County, or or the First Alabama U.S. Regiment uh, in school. No, no, nor from the state-approved textbooks in the state of Alabama. The most influential book ever written about Alabama during that era is called Civil War and Reconstruction in Alabama by Walter L. Fleming, a very famous historian in his day. It was published in 1905, and it makes a fleeting mention of the 1st Alabama Cavalry as traitors to the Confederacy and says that uh, the the mountain people of North Alabama who went into the Union Army were simply uh, opportunists and, for the most part, criminals. So not only was this Alabama Union Regiment sort of uh, condemned and libeled in Alabama history, but it was completely misrepresented. I was uh, the Atlanta bureau chief in for the New York Times in 1979, when I finally ran across a book that told me that there was indeed an entire Union regiment called the 1st Alabama Cavalry USA, and it was raised in those 18 mountain counties of North Alabama that opposed secession and remained uh, loyal to the Union. So... From that scrap, I then began to make the uh, sort of weave the whole uh, mosaic, so to speak. Well, we're going to take a short break, and we'll come back and, and we'll look at that mosaic. We'll talk about the uh, the raising and the the service record of the First Alabama Cavalry, which are the subject of the book Silent Cavalry: How Union Soldiers from Alabama Helped Sherman Burn Atlanta and Then Got Written Out of History. It's written by our guest tonight, Howell Rains. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G 
at ecu.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Howell Raines, author of Silent Cavalry, how Union soldiers from Alabama helped Sherman burn Atlanta and then got written out of history. Howell, we're talking about the uh, this regiment's raised in North Alabama in, in uh, Winston County, among others. You referred to that as the free state of Winston. Uh, what? Where does that title come from? I, I'm guessing... Uh, listeners, are you're familiar with the Free State of Jones? Um, uh, we, we've oh, interviewed the author of that book here. Uh, what was the Free State of Winston? The Mountain South, that is the Appalachian portions of Virginia, North Carolina, Georgia, Tennessee, northern Alabama, and even a bit of Mississippi, was a land of small yeoman farmers who owned uh, maybe 160 acres uh, at most. They didn't own slaves. Therefore, they did not have an economic interest in fighting for the plantation owner's right to have slaves. There was also a political component. These areas in Alabama were settled in in the large uh, measure by uh, Jack... uh, people who were politically loyal to Andrew Jackson. They were Jacksonian Democrats, and they believed in Jackson's dictum from 1840, the Union must be preserved. So they were predisposed not to agree with the Whig Party, which represented the plantation owners of South Alabama and the richer parts of the South. So there was, there was this independent political spirit. They were not abolitionists. They were not philosophically opposed to slavery. They simply believed, like Andrew Jackson, that the issue was not worth breaking up the union over, that the union was sacred and had to somehow figure out a way to get around this uh, regional dispute over slavery. So when when Alabama secedes, uh, does Winston County make its its views known? Yeah, and this is another part of the Alabama history that's that's hard to dig out of the Alabama textbooks. Alabama, uh, four-fifths of the convention delegates at the Alabama Secession Convention of January 1861, uh, two-fifths uh, were opposed to secession. This was maddening to William Lowndes Yancey, the great secessionist orator who took South Carolina out of the Union and then took Alabama out. So this obdurate group of secessionists in the Alabama Convention were basically ignored. Uh, they, They were noted, but historians in Alabama made little of the fact that on the first test vote on secession, uh, the the uh, pro-secession forces prevailed only by, uh, let's see, let me, uh, by a vote of 64 to 46. So that's a pretty close vote. And that block mm-hmm. of 40 or so uh, anti-secessionists held up throughout the convention, even though they were threatened uh, with hanging by, by Yancey, who said, after 
the Confederacy is formed, all of you who don't support this will be subject to prosecution as traitors. So it was a fraught period. And that's where we come to Christopher Sheets, the, uh, I think, the most outstanding anti-war activist in the, in the uh, antebellum South. Hmm. He, he was a 21-year-old school teacher in Winston County, deeply rural area. He began talking against secession around the general stores when on December 24th of 1860, Alabama voters went to the polls to elect 100 delegates, one to three people from each county, for the, for the secession convention to be held on, in January of 1861. Sheets, an unknown, beat his opponent, who was a plantation owner, by a mm. five-to-one vote. And that indicates the strength of anti-secession sentiment in Alabama, which held up throughout the war. Um, the Free State of Winston slogan came from a speech that uh, Sheets gave uh, to a, a large anti-war rally estimated at two to 3,000 people at uh, Natural Bridge, Alabama, or rather at Looney's Tavern, Alabama, a rural inn. That was a huge crowd for the period. And the way we know that it happened is that a Confederate spy wrote a report about it that he submitted to, to the Confederate authorities. And the other thing that uh, happened there is that uh, one of the uh, dissidents in the crowd may, tried to make a joke, who, who, the free state of Winston secedes. And that's where the slogan, the free state of Winston comes. Winston County, very different from Jones County. Winston County was a purely political movement that resulted in a uh, regiment in the Union Army of 2,066 people. The Free State of Jones, with all respect to their distinctive history, was a very different kind of story. It was mainly a local uh, uh, racial and slavery issue that had no military effect on the war. So the the regiment that's raised... Um, that starts in, in 1862. Uh, you describe how Union forces under Don Carlos Buell and his Army of the Ohio uh, occupy southern Tennessee and part of northern Alabama. This this was dear to my heart. Uh, my dissertation was on the Army of the Ohio, and uh, I pulled it off the shelf and noticed I don't refer to the first Alabama. I only carry the story up to October 1862, which is just about when we see these first companies of uh, of loyal Alabama troops being organized. Yeah, what, it, uh, go ahead with the story. You, you, you prepared the earth very well for my story with your book, All for the Regiment, uh, which tells the, the story of Don Carlos Buell. And you know that you know that history very well. Huntsville, Alabama fell on I think it was April eleventh, eighteen sixty-two. That was a stab to the heart from which the Confederacy never recovered. It that occupation of Huntsville coincided with the anti-war activity and recruiting activity that Chris Sheets was conducting in the mountain counties of Alabama. So as soon as uh, 
Ormsby Mitchell and mm-hmm. later uh, Buell occupied Huntsville, people began filtering through the woods uh, to go and enlist in the Union Army. They were motivated by loyalty to the Union and they were fleeing the Confederate Draft Act, which also took place uh, in April of uh, 1862, as I, as I recall. So these, by the dozens, by the twos of threes, and sometimes up to 100 at a time, Alabama farmers began flooding into Huntsville and Decatur, and later into Carth, Mississippi, all Union strongholds. And Don Carlos Buell, about whom you've written quite accurately, quite accurately that he was a very dilatory commander, mm-hmm. but with uncharacteristic celerity, in, in uh, August of 1862, he wrote the War Department urging that the volunteers from Alabama be organized into a regiment. And a little noted aspect of that is in his Order number 106, August of 1862, Buell announced that Captain H.C. Bankhead from the New York Recruiting Office of the Union Army would come to Alabama and organize the recruits. That's a very significant detail because Bankhead was one Mm -hmm. of the top recruiting officers in the Union Army. So that means from the very start, the War Department and Lincoln understood that they wanted to emphasize uh, this effort. It was not a stopgap effort. They were sending a talented young officer from West Point to, ru- to run the uh, organization of the 1st Alabama Cavalry. I mean, that makes sense because you've, you've got Union sentiment in eastern Tennessee, uh, northern Alabama, western North Carolina, all the, the Appalachian places you mentioned. Uh, so so this isn't just a backwater. This is This is part of the Union strategy of of arousing the the what they hope is a latent loyalty within the South, and and they find it in Northern Alabama. Uh, they not only found it, but uh, it became uh, an important national story. It was written up in the New York papers and in the Cincinnati papers. Uh, and one of the things that lets you know, let, let me know how efficient the Mountain Grapevine was in sending recruits into this army was that on uh, one of the men who went to uh, enlist in Huntsville was a collateral cousin of mine named Guilford Barton. Mm. Guilford Barton was one of five brothers, all of whom enlisted in the 1st Alabama Cavalry in the first companies that were organized. And so all of these events that I've just been describing were happening in July in August of 1862. On July 12th, 1862, 100 miles south of of Huntsville, Guilford Barton's wife gave birth to another collateral cousin of mine named General Buell Barton. (laughs) So that shows you that this Union sentiment was strong enough that they were looking to this flawed Union general, General Don Carlos Buell as something of a hero at that time. And wow. the, the, the synchronicity of those events, when I found them, really excited me because it, it told a lot about the political atmosphere. It was the unionism, which had been depicted as kind of a rump, 
even criminal type movement was in fact a vibrant uh, political movement in in North Alabama. And, well, you just say so you describe it in in the book just how vibrant it is and how much resistance there is. Um, you have some very interesting chapters about the 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 violence among civilians, uh, the, the the feuding, the uh, uh, resistance to draft uh, uh, to the Confederate draft. It there's there's a lot here. I'm looking at the book and would say it, it's over 400 pages. Uh, can't discuss every detail of it, so I'm going to skip ahead to one of the most fascinating aspects. Uh, the regiment serves. Once it's fully organized through 1863, uh, but in 1864, it really takes center stage in the Western theater uh, when it becomes the the vanguard of, of one of Sherman's armies marching toward Atlanta. Uh, in particular, they are there at, at Snake Creek Gap uh, yeah. when, when General McPherson has his big chance. Uh, tell us about the first Alabama in that moment. Uh, I will, uh, and one of the uh, one of the surprising things about the first Alabama is, although this fact was ignored by Alabama historians and seldom, if ever, noted by national historians, mm-hmm. the first Alabama was selected as Sherman's personal escort, and they appear in the order of battle for the Atlanta campaign. They're right there in Sherman's memoirs. And yet, thoroughly overlooked by uh, by many historians for many many years, as you noted in uh, your book about Buell and his uh, generalship in North Alabama, uh, the whole ambition of Lincoln and Stanton was to get to Chattanooga as the mm-hmm. doorway to Atlanta. When they finally do get there. Uh, after the Battle of Lookout Mountain and after Chickamauga, mm-hmm. um, they start toward Atlanta. They soon come into this, into the front of this massive mountain about 60 miles outside Chattanooga that has three gaps through it. And Joe Johnston's entire Confederate army is is entrenched atop this this massive stone ridge. General Grenville Dodge and Colonel George Spencer, the commanders of the 1st Alabama, do an end run and go through Snake Creek Gap, uh, the, the least prominent of the three gaps, and they surprise Johnson and hit his army from the rear. They're about to go through an attack, which everybody agrees could have ended the war then and there when uh, Sherman's favorite general, MacPherson, the most popular mm-hmm. general in the Union Army, perhaps, gallops onto the scene and tells the 1st Alabama to desist, not to make the charge. And Sherman, who wept when uh, this young general was killed a few days later, MacPherson in Atlanta, said to him, Mac, you've missed the chance of a lifetime. Such a chance doesn't occur twice in a war. So that's how, if the first Alabama and Grenville Dodge, and they were part of a larger cavalry Mm -hmm. group, had been allowed to charge out of Snake Creek Gap and hit Johnston in the rear, 
uh, Johnston's army would have been routed and it's, and Atlanta would never have burned. It, it, things could have been so much different there. Well, yeah, it, in, well, you make the same point about Chattanooga. If it had been taken in 1862, Jerry, as you point out, the war could have ended uh, two years earlier as well. No, there are there are chances uh, that, that come and go like that. Uh, but, but as Sherman said, only once uh, to an individual, certainly. So the you said that the first Alabama serves as Sherman's headquarters troops. Uh, th- you described during the march to the sea that that doesn't mean that they're they're being coddled, they're being kept behind uh, at headquarters. They they get to do a lot of uh, foraging as well. Yeah, there was only one part of one company, uh, probably two dozen people, who <laughs> traveled with Sherman, built his campfires, carried his whiskey, carried his cigars. And we're with him every night. The rest of the first Alabama, which started out as a force of close to 2,000 and was re- reduced to 800 by the end of the march to the sea, they, Sherman and uh, General Blair, the famous uh, political general from uh, Washington, D.C., quickly recognized that these Alabamians were very valuable as scouts and they were pretty ferocious fighters. So they really became the point of half of the, the point, spear point of half of the uh, Sherman's army of 62,000. They led one wing of the army uh, and uh, were present at the burning of Atlanta, but they really came into the fore, leading the march down to Macon, Milledgeville, and on to Savannah. And they were consistently uh, out front. For, for the whole march. And uh, uh, say that, that it's a remarkable story that they had that prominence. Uh, and we're going to talk about it a little bit more. We're going to take a short break uh, and then talk about the second part of your uh, uh, subtitle. Uh, the book is titled Silent Cavalry, How Union Soldiers from Alabama Helped Sherman Burn Atlanta and Then Got Written Out of History. The author is our guest tonight, Howell Rains. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. 
You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking this evening with Howell Raines, author of Silent Cavalry, How Union Soldiers from Alabama Helped Sherman Burn Atlanta and then got written out of history. So, Howell, we were discussing how the first Alabama spearheads, one of Sherman's armies, on the march to the sea. They are so successful, they end up leading the the parade that's held in Savannah when Sherman gets there. So let me ask about the the bottom of your subtitle, uh, and then got written out of history. How did a regiment that is so well-known, that gets newspaper coverage during the war, that leads the army uh, from Atlanta to Savannah, uh, how do, do they disappear? Uh, and, and a good portion of your book is dedicated to this story they didn't disappear by accident and that's where my journalistic investigative skills came into play and it it became a kind of connect the dots uh, mystery story that took uh, a long time to uh, to figure out we know that some small, smaller, uh, some regimental units like the 54th Massachusetts or Joshua mm-hmm. Chamberlain's troops at, from Maine at Little Round Top became quite famous during the war. Well, as it turns out, the first Alabama was pretty well known. It was written up in the New York Times. It was written up in the uh, New York Herald Trib- or Tribune, as it was then, I think. Mm-hmm. It was written up in the Cincinnati Papers. But then it sort of disappears from the mainstream histories. There are two threads to this uh, story, and I'll try to sketch them briefly. The mm-hmm. first had to do with the Alabama Department of Archives and History. Its founder, Thomas McAdory Owen, was famous in his day because even though Alabama was not advanced in educational matters, he was the first person to organize a state-funded archive, and that became a nationally known model. And Thomas McAdory Owen basically decided, and this has been documented by Daniel Cohn, a doctoral student at Auburn University, decided that even though he knew, obviously, that there were union sympathizers in North Alabama, the Alabama Department of Archives and History would collect only the stories of Confederate regiments. So the 3,000 Alabamians who served in the Union Army, the Alabama archives basically ignored their service records and their service. So that was step one. One of Thomas McAdory's Owens' friends, and I found the original correspondence in the Alabama archives, was William Archibald Dunning, the most important Civil War historian at Columbia University starting around 1900 and uh, continuing for the first 20 years of the century. He trained an entire generation of historians that came to be known as the Dunning School. And they dominated the writing of Civil War history up to 
the start of the civil rights movement in 1960. And Dunning's core principle, he was pro-Confederate. His core principle was that the plantation owners were misunderstood aristocrats who happened to be wrong, perhaps, on the uh, issue of slavery, but had were a noble people who had been badly treated during Reconstruction. So this uh, Dunning School pro-Confederate uh, motif became the dominant theme of most Civil War histories uh, written in uh, in the first half of the 20th century, and that that was sort of the academic. Uh, counterpart of the gone with the wind aura of the aristocratic South. So as Ken Burns has said, the, the Civil War was the only one in which the losers got to write the history. And there, there's a lot of truth in that. Now, then I became interested in the question of why national historians didn't uh, penetrate this kind of wall of, of secrecy that the Alabama Department of Archives and History had set up. And the reason was that the major historians of, of the first part of the century depended on the state histories that were produced in great numbers at the state and uh, state university level in the first 50 years of this century. So the, the veil uh, of silence that the uh, Alabama Archives directed coupled with Dunning's approach of a pro-Confederate bias, resulted in the first Alabama sliding into the dustbin of history. Now, this, and this would be true generally of, of Southern Unionists, not, not just the first Alabama yeah. cavalry specifically, that, that mainstream historians are simply not paying much attention to white Southerners who stayed loyal to the Union. Yeah, we are indebted to Richard Nelson Current, the mm -hmm. former, the late Lincoln biographer. In 1992, he published a book called Lincoln's Loyalist. Mm -hmm. And so far as I know, he was the first person to do the arithmetic in the archives. And he established that 100,000 residents of the Confederate States voluntarily enlisted in the Union Army. That's aside from the many thousands of freed slaves who went in the Union Army. This is 100,000 white Union volunteers from the South. That's almost 5% of the Union Army. And so in, until Current uh, wrote his book in 1992, there was just little attention paid to these uh, people. And he was hailed as opening up a new field of Civil War scholarship but it took several years, uh, it took 25 years, basically. So I was able to finish my history of the first Alabama because over the past 20 to 25 years, a new generation of doctoral students at a number of universities uh, ha have decided to dig into the question uh, uh, or into the history of these 100,000 Southerners who fought for the Union. Now, we've had uh, a fair number of them on this show uh, uh, talking about their work uh, in, in the last uh, number of years because it really is an interesting uh, interesting topic and, and one that has, hasn't been covered 
fully in the past. Yeah, it's been a vibrant new field, and uh, I don't have my bibliography in front of me, but I think there have been some scholars at East Carolina University who have been among those uh, digging into this area. Well, it, it has... I'd say there are, there are people across the, 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 not just across the South, but at universities across the country who've been looking into this. Um, you have some very interesting things to say about uh, Shelby Foote and the influence uh, uh, that he had in the Ken Burns series. I know pretty much everyone listening tonight is familiar with Ken Burns and his show. Um, would I'm since we're running short on time uh, and I want to leave at least some teasers for uh, listeners to go out and buy a copy of this book and read it. Uh, let me say, if you want to know some of the backstory on Shelby Foote, there's some very interesting material here. Indeed, the whole last section of the book, as I was reading it, I started thinking I've, I've wandered into W.J. Cash territory. I'm, I'm reading a sociological analysis of, of the South, of Southern intellectuals, uh, and I, I, listeners, I, I'm trying to communicate the idea that this book is is, is richer than than just its title uh, might might lead you to think. Uh, there's a lot of interesting material here. And you said something that really stuck out uh, near the end of the book about how writers like Walter Fleming, who you mentioned, uh, uh, well, Dunning is a northerner, but uh, but Frank Owsley, uh, other southern historians of the early 20th century, uh, traditionally, uh, there's some people that give them a pass, uh, saying, well, that was what, that they were just people of their time. And uh, their quite open racism it was just a part of, of their era. We shouldn't judge them by our standards today. Yeah, I've never I've never uh, been uh, favorably inclined toward that uh, toward that because if, if as I read Southerners writing uh, Southern scholars writing about the Civil War, they're pretty open about their bias and they're pretty uh, open about understanding that slavery was contrary to the ethical culture uh, of the of the country. What I'll say one word, a, a teaser maybe about uh, <laughs> Shelby Foote. Shelby, you know, uh, hijacked Ken Burns' Civil War uh, series in, in many ways. Uh, <laughs> and one of the things I learned in talking to Ken and Rick Burns, his brother, and the very fine Civil War historian Jeffrey C. Ward about <laughs> writing the script for the Civil War documentary, Shelby Foote never told them about the first Alabama, even though it was raised within a hundred or so miles of his home. And uh, I think I pretty well figured out that Shelby did that on purpose to put a pro-Confederate spin on that documentary. Well, I think you make clear that he, he, he must have known. I mean, he was not a a historian as such. He was a novelist. Uh, Once he finished that trilogy, he stopped reading or studying the civil war but but as, i think you make a convincing case he surely knew of northern alabama unionism and uh, the first alabama cavalry yeah. uh and of well, course he leaves that out very sophisticated man i was lucky enough to have lunch with him once in new york and he said late in his life historians are going to find a lot of holes in my account of the war because i went not for the history but for the story mm-hmm. It, 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 it's, uh, 
it remains uh, uh, well maybe it doesn't remain quite so much anymore when I read it decades ago it was still entertaining uh, but but it was not uh, when I was in grad school nobody said oh you need to read that for its historical content uh, yeah I think that's uh, right but he, you know he he's uh, matchless on some things uh, like his scene when Lincoln goes out to uh, the Maryland uh, line from the from the District of Columbia to mm-hmm. watch Jubal Early's attempted invasion. That's one yeah. of the most dramatic accounts of, of a Civil War scene that I've ever read. No, he he, he is certainly uh, outstanding at that. Let me take the last couple of minutes to uh, invite you to take a ride on the Civil War uh, talk radio time machine. Uh, <laughs> if you could go back for 30 minutes into history and come back with complete safety, uh, you've got 30 minutes to talk to someone of, of all the characters, all the, the individuals you've, you've researched uh, over the decades, who would you want to spend that half hour with? I think I'd have to say Chris Sheets. Um, simply because he was such an individualistic crusader for his political views under the threat of hanging. And he did such a remarkable job of what we now would call community organizing, that even though he was jailed in hell for most of the war, his legacy was the 2050 white Alabamians who enlisted in the First Alabama Cavalry USA, and the 16 freed slaves who enlisted, making it one of the few integrated units uh, in the Union Army at that time. Well, that would be an interesting person to talk to. And at the very end of the book, you hold out hope that we may actually find more. Uh, You said you discovered some records of the First Alabama Cavalry in the archives that have been mislabeled for for the century plus that, that they yeah my there. my uh, paid researcher was my uh, grandson Jasper Rains who's an undergraduate history major at the University of South Alabama he worked for me and he found in the Alabama archives the company rosters the regimental rosters of the first three companies in the first Alabama Union Cavalry. As best I could determine in conversation with Steve Murray, the very progressive director of the archives now, we think those records were mislabeled and have been in the archives for a hundred years. How they got there from Washington, D.C. is a mystery. Mm-hmm. And uh, how they got mislabeled is another mystery. As I say in, my, uh, in an op-ed I've got coming out in a few days, my, I think Thomas uh, McAdory Owen may have mislabeled them on purpose because he ah. didn't want them getting into the main archives to show how many Alabamians there were in the Union Army. Well, we now know that today, thanks to this book, which is called Silent Cavalry, How Union Soldiers from Alabama Helped Sherman Burn Atlanta and Then Got Written Out of History. Its author has been our guest tonight, Howell Rains. Uh, listeners, you'll want to get a copy of this book. It is, uh, it, it's a trip. It's really an interesting uh, story about a regiment and much more. Uh, Howell, thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. Thank you, Jerry. It's been my pleasure. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.
Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.